I was reading about a book that was released last week by a guy called Gus Openshaw, and um, you can buy it from Amazon.com. This is what it said on the back cover. Cat food cannery worker Gus Openshaw has one goal in life, to kill a whale. Now, I won't read any more because it'll spoil the, the story, but if you read the book, you can find out why Gus wanted to kill this whale and how he went about it. See, people have all sorts of goals in life, don't they? Whether it's killing a whale, whether it's climbing Mount Everest, uh, whether it's not repeating the mistakes that their parents made on them when they have children, whether it's writing a book, whether it's travelling overseas. We have all sorts of goals, things that we'd like to achieve in life. And in Australia, we're very fortunate because I think if you really try, um, within reason, you can probably achieve what you aim for. I mean, if you want to be a millionaire, you can be. If you set your aim on that and put aside other things, save $50 a week for 50 years, you'll be a millionaire. Or $100 a week for 40 years, you'll be a millionaire. If you want to travel to every continent, well, there's nothing stopping you. All sorts of things we could do. Uh, We have a great deal of choice about what job we do, uh, what house we have, which often, I think, leads to that feeling as we look back on life. I wonder what it would have been like if I had have done such and such. If I had have pursued that, what would it have been like? I mean, there's many areas in life where we could make a difference. If we really wanted to, if we put our time and energy into it, we could make a difference. Which I think raises the question, what do you want to do with your life? Where do you want to make a difference? What are your goals? And this morning, as we look at the book of 1 Timothy, that's really what chapter 6 is about, as the book draws to a close. Not just what are your goals, but are your goals in life caught up with the things of this world, or are they bigger than that? Are your goals to do with money and uh, circumstances in life, or are your goals in life to do with God? and his kingdom, and your eternal future? Are you going to shape your life around now, or are you going to shape your life around eternity? Now, last week we were thinking about money and contentment, but this week we step back and we look at the bigger picture, who we're serving with our whole life and why. And in terms of money and God, there's really two options. You can see them on your outline. Verses 3 to 10 of chapter 6 talk about using God and loving money. But then verses 17 to 18 talk about loving God and using money. See, as we work through these two different ways of thinking, Paul will be encouraging Timothy, but not just Timothy, Paul will be encouraging us not to use God and to love money, but to love God and to use money for his glory. So let's just work through the passage firstly, Using God and loving money. Some people's goals and values are based solely on what they can see around them. They live entirely for this life. So much so, in fact, that they are willing to use God, use church, use religion, whatever, to make money. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he's conceited and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Go right up to verse 3 there. The first thing to notice here is that there is such a thing as false doctrines. Okay? There's such a thing as false teaching. According to the Bible, um, it's possible to say that someone's view or what someone says is wrong. Now, we're in a um, uh, society today where it's um, trendy to say that everything is right. You know, that's just a different interpretation. That's just a different view. Whatever your interpretation might be, it doesn't matter. They're all okay. But the Bible doesn't talk in terms of different interpretations or different views. It's not that complicated. On issues where the Bible speaks, there's a right and there's a wrong. There's sound instruction. It comes from Jesus Christ. There's false doctrines. They come from the devil. Now, a minister says homosexuality is good. That's not an interpretation. That's a false doctrine. It's wrong. A minister says that the miracles in the Bible didn't really happen. That's not another valid opinion. It's a lie. A minister says that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead, and there's such ministers here in Dubbo. That's not just a different perspective on things. That is false teaching. It's wrong. You might say, hang on, the Bible isn't clear on anything. There's some things that we can, are free to disagree on. And there are. Uh, the Bible doesn't say some th certain things. It doesn't tell me what brand of car I need to buy. Where the Bible does speak, generally, it's not that hard to work out what it's saying. Sure, there's some bits that you might not need to think about, but most of the time... It's not that hard. I mean, look at what we looked at last week, verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. That's a fairly simple verse. Last week, I stood here in front of you and I said, God does not want you to love money. But you didn't need me to work that out. You could have read it for yourself. Yet some Christians will say, God wants you to be rich, and it's okay to want to be rich. Where's that come from? Well, if you play around with it long enough, if you're clever enough, you can pop out the other end with an interpretation that it's okay to love money, but that's not listening to the Bible. That's using the Bible to make it say what you want it to say. That's loving money and using God. It's like when I tell our kids not to ride their bikes on the road. And uh, after a little bit of riding their bikes in the um, driveway, they decide to get out their scooters and ride their scooters on the right road because Daddy didn't say uh, scooters, he said bikes. And so they're out there on the middle of the road and I come out and I say, didn't I tell you not to ride your bikes on the road? And they say, yeah, you didn't say scooters. Now, they know not only what I said, they know what I meant but they're trying to get around it. And that's what we can do with God's word. Parts of it are a bit uncomfortable, a bit inconvenient, a bit radical. We might stand out. You may have even done it at times. 
wriggle our way out from under God's word by being clever. That's what false teachers do. They use the Bible for their own gain. And God is not at all favourable to these kinds of people. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels and words quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. See, the Bible just names it for what it is. People who sit in their offices with a PhD and write a book on why Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they might look clever, they've got letters after their name, but they understand nothing. Their minds are corrupt. They've been robbed of the truth. There's no truth left. They prefer to argue about what the Bible doesn't say than submit to what it does say. And sometimes false teaching sounds more loving, doesn't it? Sometimes false teaching sounds more accepting. We'll accept you whatever your belief is. Come and join us. But it's, it's never loving to change the Bible to what people want to hear. It causes trouble. Look at verse 4. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result... What do they result in? Envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of corrupt mind. Now that is exactly what is happening in the Uniting Church at the moment and if you've got family members like I do who are part of it, you'll know it. It looks loving to say... Gays, lesbians, bisexual, transsexual lifestyles, they're okay. Sounds loving. Sounds accepting. But according to 1 Timothy 6, when you teach something different to the Bible, it causes friction, suspicion, strife, division. That is exactly what is happening in the Uniting Church. They're arguing with each other over it. But it's actually harder to stand up for the truth, even though it's loving. But it is loving. So you need to say, we need to say, this is wrong, but we're going to love you, we're going to support you, we're going to help you obey Jesus, even when it's hard, we're going to stick by you. That's what Jesus did. He had the loving approach. He called people to repent, he named their sinners sin, then he gave his life for them, to forgive them. False teaching is not loving, but calling people to the truth and to trust Jesus, that is loving. Paul names it as it is in verse 5, the worst case, constant friction between men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. People who teach false doctrines are in it for their own gain. Other translations don't have the financial, It it just really means for their gain. It may be financial gain, it may be pride, it may be popularity. People who teach false doctrines are in it for their own gain. They're using God, using God, for their own agenda. In the worst case, they're using God, twisting his word, and then drawing a salary from the very church they are destroying by their false teaching. 
And that's the warning here. Love money and you will end up using God for your own means. But the Bible has a better way. Love God and use money to bring him glory. And that's what Paul encourages Timothy to do in verses 17 to 19. So verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. See, don't use God and love money. Love God and use your money to serve him and to serve other people. We saw last week it's a trap to want to be rich. But it's not wrong to be rich. If you're rich, you need to realize that it's God who's provided everything for you for your enjoyment. So be thankful for it. Don't be guilty about it. But if you are rich, that's great because you can use your money to love other people and to love God. Paul doesn't say command those who are rich in this present world to sell everything so that they can be poor and then they can learn what it is to be content when they're poor. Now you need to be content whatever the circumstances, whether rich or poor. But if you are rich, then you can use your money to love other people. Now being generous is not what we looked at two weeks ago, supporting your parents, helping people in need in the church, helping widows, supporting church workers. workers. That's not generosity. We saw that was obligation. You don't pat yourself on the back after you do that. But having done that, having supported the people you need to support, if you still have money, then you have the great privilege of being able to go beyond that and be generous to other people. Support a compassion child. Support a missionary overseas so they can preach the gospel. Help a family that's less well off than you. Pay for someone else to go to the church camp. Help a brother or sister in Christ pay off a loan or buy a car or whatever. The opportunities are endless. If you see a need and it fits the test of helping someone be godly, then go for it. That's your job if you're rich. Give away your money in a way that promotes godliness in other people. Use your money to love God and to love other people. And the great thing about being rich, and most of us are rich, is that you have so many opportunities to use your money to love other people. What a privilege. Not only that, Paul goes on to say that your generosity lasts into eternity. When you die, your money's gone, but your generosity to other people lasts to eternity. Look at verse 19. In this way... They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Money can help you in your, stri- in your quest for eternal life if you use it rightly. See, Paul has a bigger picture than just this life. There's something bigger to live for. In fact, that's where Paul was heading back in verse 11 where he was telling Timothy to flee from false teaching. Let's go back to verse 11. Paul said, You, man of God, flee from all this. 
Get rid of all this false teaching and desire for money and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight. See, Timothy, there's a battle going on. Your salvation is at stake. Timothy, you're in a church family. You're a teacher. The salvation of your mothers and fathers in Christ is at stake. The salvation of your younger brothers and sisters in Christ is at stake. Be a man, Timothy. Fight the fight. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Paul is encouraging Timothy to take the eternal perspective. It's important to flee from false teaching. It's important to flee from the love of money. It's important to be generous. But it's also important to pursue godliness and pursue eternal things. See verse 12? Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. This is a big charge to Timothy. Paul is saying, I charge you, Timothy, in the sight of God, who gives life to everyone. I charge you, Timothy, in the sight of Jesus Christ, who will one day return. I charge you, Timothy, in the sight of God, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. I charge you, Timothy. What does he charge Timothy to do? Free from, flee from the love of money. Cling to eternal life. Take the eternal view. Timothy, cling to the confession that Jesus made in front of Pontius Pilate. The confession that he was the Christ. Those simple words, Timothy, Jesus is the Christ, they take us from death to life. Believing that Jesus is the Christ is what gives you eternal life so stick with it timothy verse 20 guard what has been entrusted to your care don't give it up for money don't be fooled by false teachers who've been robbed of the truth cling to the gospel and cling to it till jesus returns fight the fight timothy those simple principles are paul's closing words to his young apprentice timothy they're the heart of the christian life don't trust money and things that you can see. Stick with Jesus. Stick with your confession that Jesus is the Christ. Don't follow false teachers. Stick with the Bible. Faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone. Is that the shape of your life? Are your goals and values in this life shaped by what you see in eternity? Last week, um, a, in the newspaper, it was talking about a 70-year-old grandfather who picked up his five-year-old grandson from kindergarten. 
The problem was the old um, grandfather was so short-sighted that he picked up the wrong child. And he didn't realise until half an hour later when the real father came and it was the wrong child and the police tracked him down, there he was with the wrong child. And he said, I thought he looked a bit different, but I just put it down to the fact that kids can change a lot at that age, Mr Karlovic said. Now you might laugh, but can't we be just as short-sighted and make such stupid mistakes that we focus on the here and now instead of eternal things? We focus on material things. We lose sight of the eternal. Is your life, are your goals, are your prayers shaped by what really matters? I mean, when you talk with people at morning tea, are you concerned for them to be fighting the good fight, taking hold of eternal life? In your small groups and in your family devotions and in your quiet times, are you praying that people would be content that they would pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance? And are you planning your year and your month and your week based on eternal values? And what about your goals and dreams for your children? Are they temporary goals or are they eternal? Because Paul is saying, keep your eye on the prize, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Don't use God and love money. Love God and use whatever you have in this life to serve him. Let's pray.